When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou, one of the curators of our live events programme, bringing the world's leading artists, scholars, writers and entrepreneurs to London for conversation and debate. Last year, we hosted Google's Eric Schmidt, Jonathan Rosenberg and Alan Eagle for an in-depth exploration of the leadership techniques they learned from Bill Campbell. Bill was a coach who played an instrumental part in growing many of Silicon Valley's biggest companies including Apple, Facebook and Intuit. Following his death in 2016, Eric, Jonathan and Alan set out to honour his memory and spread his ideas in a book, Trillion Dollar Coach. Matthew Stadlin caught up with them backstage to find out more. This book of yours learns hugely, of course, from Bill Campbell, the trillion-dollar coach, or as you say in the book, he's probably more than a trillion-dollar coach. Maybe a two-trillion-dollar coach. What was so special about him? Or Do I answer my own question with my question? This is Eric. I think he's the most successful coach in world history. He coached Steve Jobs and the Apple leadership. He coached myself, Larry and Sergey, and the Google leadership to build corporations of enormous impact. He also did that throughout the whole of Silicon Valley, and he also did it with middle school, high school students. He was one of the greatest coaches who's ever lived. So how would you condense what it means to be a successful leader, Eric? Um, In Bill's case, his entire objective was to make you successful. He would not have liked the book. He would never have wanted the attention. He never worked for salary. His whole goal was to get joy in your success. And because you knew that, you knew he was always on your team. Does that chime with you, Jonathan? Yeah, I think so. Eric, in particular, Bill really would teach you that your title makes you a manager, but it's your people that make you a leader. And that was really what was central to his coaching principles. You know, he took us through leadership, trust, teamwork, love, building community. But it really all started by teaching you how to be a better manager, how to run better one-on-ones, how to run better meetings, how to make better decisions. Having written this book, Alan, how easy do you think it is to be a good leader? Oh, it's not easy at all to be a good leader. Um, But I think, so we learned a couple of things from Bill uh, through the, the research that we did on the book. And one is that he was a coach of teams. 
A business is a team sport. People think of executive coaching as a one-on-one sort of thing. I work with you. I'm your coach. But in fact, he was the coach not just of Eric, but of Eric's leadership team. And by the way, I thought he was my coach for the whole time. It wasn't until we started working on this book that I realized that he'd been coaching the whole team on Moss, but he was so good, he felt like my coach. And not just the team at Google, of course. And of course, he was coaching everyone else at the same time. Yeah, so leadership is really an equation, I think. One is management, be a strong performer, be a strong manager, know the numbers of your business, run tight processes. And then the other aspect of it is coaching. And, you know, Bill was a unique individual, but a lot of the things we learned about what he did, how he did it, we think are things that other people can learn as well. So if you really want to be a great leader, be a great manager and a great coach. I think you found out when you went for a job and, and Bill interviewed you, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you learned pretty quickly that coaching was absolutely essential to leadership and being open to being coached. He, he chose the people that he would coach. And he almost didn't choose me because I was a smart aleck in the interview process. You said it depends on he the asked, coach, yeah, right? He asked me... He asked me uh, about coaching, and I said, it depends on the quality of the coach. And he, of course, was very offended, and he left, and I had to but, go but run Jonathan, back and get him into the Jonathan, room. Jonathan, let's just get into the whole story. You'd had two offers before, so which I'd you've turned down. I, I'd made the mistake of refusing two of Google's job offers, and Eric actually brought me in, and I was assuming was going to make me an offer. And that was when I actually first met Bill, and he asked me if I was coachable, and I almost lost my job offer. And finally, he came back in, and he just went into a tirade. It was like a lecture on humility and how arrogance played no part in management. And then eventually he asked me if, uh, if he were to coach me, what would I want to get out of it? And I didn't know what to say, but I remembered a quote from Tom Landry, who's an American football coach. And he said, a coach can see the things that you can't see and hear the things you don't want to hear to help you become the person you always wanted to be. And that was a good quote, given that Bill Campbell himself had been a pretty successful coach. Yeah, but he looked at me, and he was like, Rosenberg, I don't believe. I don't believe you believe that, but okay, I'll try to coach you anyway. We we actually, because this is not a biography, but nevertheless it is about a person of great importance, we went back and checked his historical coaching record, and he was not a very successful football coach. So somehow he was a football coach, he transitioned into the tech industry, but all those skills about managing prima donnas and playing in your position translated very well to Apple and Google and everywhere else. If you had been a successful football coach, we might not be here right. because he would have stayed with football. What's interesting is I, I've asked people who knew him before I knew him well how to describe him. And they said that his work ethic was extraordinary. And I said, well, give me an example. So in their case, what they did is they told me the story of he would bike every weekend. And he was famous for doing these one-day trips. You would go uh, in the morning to Japan, you would have your meetings, and then you would fly on the red-eye back. So he had a biking accident on Sunday. He had seven broken ribs. And on Monday morning, he got on the airplane, went all the way to Japan and all the way back. The work ethic mattered, and he expected that from everyone around him. And it takes that kind of discipline and hard work to really create extraordinary successes. Bill always talked about he would look for people who are coachable. And so uh, coachability means the ability to learn. You know, even it's what you know after you know it all that counts. Uh, And the ability, you know, in business, if you're going to try to innovate, if you're going to move fast, you're going to fail. 
So it's not, you know, you don't look for people who don't fail. You want to look for people who bounce back after failure as part of being coachable. Bill, Bill fit in very well at Google because we often set very, very aggressive, seemingly unattainable goals and then try to deliver against them. And what people would tell us was, Bill had your back. You could go try something that you didn't expect would succeed, and if it failed, Bill would be there for you. And at the end of the year, Bill would only want to talk about your accomplishments. He'd want to make a stack if you did a review of all of the great things somebody did, and he wasn't interested in all the mistakes that you made. People who try more get more done. And, and it, it seems like culture has gotten to the point where there's complete risk intolerance. And so when you have no risk-seeking behavior at all, because if you fail, you'll be criticized, whether it's on social media or by your boss or by shareholders or what have you, you won't also get those shots on goal that will deliver excellence. It's a balance. And he somehow knew where that balance was. And Eric, when you became CEO at Google, you were supposed to be the grown-up in the room in, in one sense. How did you at the same time allow for that creative, youthful, often youthful environment to take hold so you wouldn't stifle that? One of the things that Bill taught was to make sure that you listened to what people could do and you gave them the room to, be, to fail, if you will. So we worked really, really hard to systematize innovation, specifically to allow people to sort of fail and fail quickly. And what we knew is that he had we had tied compensation to success, but we also understood that you couldn't be successful unless you took the risk. And so people would understand that, if the, that they would get protected, that there wasn't a numerical score at the end which said, oh, you know, two failed and three were successful, and therefore you get 60%. It was much more of a judgment of did you try really hard. And Bill also, one of our colleagues at Google, said that Bill was an evangelist for courage. And if you think about this, this is what a coach does. A coach will watch you fail and will correct, but will also build you up to make you think that you can do, you know, you can be your very best. And so, you know, that's part of what coaching ought to be. And what he did was try to achieve really big things. Think bigger, try to achieve bigger things. Sometimes you'll fail, you'll fail, but you can do it. And he would give people that confidence. And Jonathan, there's a section in the book about the power of love, the strength of love. And now Bill, as you candidly write in the book, would yell at people sometimes, but this you describe as him really loving that person or wanting to push them to, their, to, to, to be their best. Where do you guys stand on we shouting about in the Jonathan yelling at people well, I, than Bill? But, but there were occasions where Bill yelled at me for yelling. Um, Bill didn't so much raise his voice and yell at you as he would give very direct feedback about what you needed to do to improve. And he would always give it to you in private. So he had this formula for observing behavior in meetings, for evaluating people's performance, evaluating their interactions with their colleagues and their peers, and then coming to you after the meeting with a very clear and succinct set of things that you could have done better and so articulate. He wouldn't humiliate you, in other words. He wouldn't, uh, he, he wouldn't humiliate you in front of a group. He never humiliated people in front of a group in the period that I worked with him. And this is part of an aspect of team coaching um, that I think Bill brought from the world of uh, college, or, yeah, college football which was that he could sit in a, in a meeting and very quietly observe what was going on, who was contributing, who was angry, who wasn't enjoying it, 
uh, who was making mistakes, and then afterwards would go around and talk to individuals of the team. And so this is an aspect that people often overlook. When you're in a meeting, even if you're the manager, be quiet, let people talk and observe. And then you can afterwards go talk to individuals and keep, the, keep that team cohesion up. Most people, I think, have seen the experience of a management meeting where the most senior person in the room does all the talking. That was always a mistake, right? That person should be listening. That person should be encouraging people to be their best. That person should be assembling their teams. Uh, what Bill was particularly good at was focusing on getting the best people on a subject and making sure everybody got heard and making quick decisions. What was interesting is he applied the same phenomena to many different companies and in the course of it never crossed the line of violating internal propriety. So, for example, Apple and Google, he was coaching both teams, and yet they were at odds on all sorts of issues. Somehow he managed to do it both. The word teams has cropped up several times, so I should ask you about that. Bill wasn't all about consensus or democracy by any means, was he? No, in fact, he, he taught the, roughly the following lesson. So the first is a corporation has a CEO and a management team or what have you, and the goal of that group is to get to the best decision, not the consensus decision. And often the best decision is not the CEO's view or even the staff's view. It's often a specialized group. So your job is to get through that. And usually what happens is there's some problem. There's a set of people who talk all the time. That's Jonathan, for example. And then there's people who never say a word, right? And your job as an executive is to hear from Jonathan and his peers, but also to hear from the others. And then out of that, elicit a process quickly to make a decision. You have to do both. You have to listen. You have to get all the right ideas. And you have to set a deadline. And tell me about the rule of two. And, and trying to make sure that it, where, where there were two people who maybe came up with different ideas, how do you bring them together? How do you get the, most, the, the best out of them? How, as a manager, do you come to a decision? Like most things with Bill, he would have ensured that those people had built a positive relationship and some camaraderie in advance. So one of the things that he would tell us is in a staff meeting, when you would normally just hand out action items to individuals, to pair people together, to get all the combinations and permutations of groups under your purview working together and have them work together on things that are not difficult to do because that'll build the relationship so that when they do then get into a situation where there's huge conflict and they're the ones that are at odds with each other, you tell them to work together and you give them a deadline and if they can't figure it out by the deadline then you tell them that you'll have to make a decision but you give them that deadline and you have them work together on it. How do you get the balance right then between encouraging a sort of certain healthy competition amongst teams or between teams, but also then getting people to fuse their creativity together so that they are stronger than the individual? Well, this is one of the essential issues of management, isn't it? Having people balance their individual objectives with that of the team. Um, and, you know, Bill's role for anyone who to be coachable would be that it has to be team first. It has to be company first. And I think you get people to bind together because they realize they want the team to do better. It, that's, that's the type of people that they are. And if there are people who are more about themselves, then they cannot stay. So team first means that after we've made a decision, you do what the decision was. You don't then go and subvert it later. You don't even say privately, hey, these guys were idiots or what have you. You say, look, you know, we made a decision. It's okay. You know, we move on. 
One of the things about businesses is you need to make a lot of decisions quickly. You won't make them perfectly, but the velocity and systematizing of the quality of the decisions was what he focused on. So how do you manage the debating? Well, in, indeed, it's not that difficult, different from sports teams. Um, you can imagine here, here in Britain, you have enormously talented um, so, uh, soccer or British, British they call football. football. They call it football here. <laughs> football coaches. Thank you, Jonathan. Right. Um, and how do they do it? These are enormously talented people who are their players. They have all sorts of individual goals. Somehow it's all about the team. It's all about winning. It's all about that shared ex experience. Those principles apply just as well to a high-tech business or any other kind of business. And we spent a lot of time on what the goals were. What are the things we care about? And collectively, if we care about the same things, that helps a great deal. But Bill really understood and appreciated these aberrant geniuses that are able to invent things that no one else can invent. You know, he used to say marketing forgot that its first name is product. Bill really understood that building the best product was a requirement in order to be successful in a tech company today. And it was often those more aberrant genius type people that were capable of building those products. So Bill would look at them and ask himself, well, are they reasonably team first oriented? Uh, do they tell the truth? And if they did, he could tolerate a lot of flaws. If they lied, if they were all about getting the credit, if they were all about themselves, then it didn't matter how smart they were, he wouldn't tolerate them. In fact, a leader's job is often to protect those people because they're difficult. They can be difficult to get along with and the culture may try to force them out. But like, as Jonathan said, if they're basically working in the interests of the team and if they're doing so with integrity, even if they're a difficult personality, you want to keep them around because they can do extraordinary things. Now, could it be a myth that tech creatives don't particularly like to be managed? And I think there was a stage early on in your CEO-ship, Eric, where, where you were doing what you've described in the book as disorging. And actually, Bill came along and said that we need managers. And he, he, he went and asked the question to the tech creatives themselves, said, do you want managers? And most of them said yes, so you then shifted, didn't you? Yeah, the, in the early years of Google, um, the founders were unhappy with the technical management, so they simply got rid of it. All of a sudden, we had no management at all, which I thought was fine, because they're pretty smart people, and they'll self-organize. When Bill showed up, Bill went around and said, look, these people actually want management. And I said, like, why? And the answer is, well, they could use a coach. They could use a mentor. They could use somebody to do career planning. They could use a person to help them with compensation planning. In other words, they know what they're doing, but they still need help in these other areas. So even the tech creative, the most arrogant people, if you will, in that, in that typical scenario, need assistance. And the management is needed for that at a minimum. Compensation is another word that has cropped up twice. I've got to ask you a question about that. Money is not always just about the money, is it? And you make that point in the book. It's not just about how much you get paid from a purely financial perspective, but how much you're valued, how much you feel valued by the company. So I found that whenever you're having a compensation conversation with an employee, you're losing. Because compensation is never the driver of the outcome. Compensation is always because they don't feel valued enough or that they haven't had the kind of impact that they want, or that there's something else wrong in their working environment. Address the fundamentals, and that's what Bill taught. Can we talk about charisma in leadership? What do you guys make of Eric? Is he a charismatic, inspiring leader? Well, he's, he's a technology optimist. Uh, can't, yeah. you do, can't you do better than that, Jonathan? You've only worked with me for 18 years. Okay, He's so. not giving you a death stare. He's smiling benignly at you, but I, I, I feel the pressure. I'll have to jump in because Jonathan is failing here. But 
yes, I'd say very much. Um, the nice thing, really a couple things about Eric, as you can tell, he's quite articulate and he answers questions very well. We just came from a meeting at Google, it was full of Google employees where we were talking about this topic. And Eric was just great at answering their questions and being funny. And I think humor also is one thing, you know, that's part of charisma, putting people at ease so they feel comfortable and they can be themselves. It's something that Bill did. I mean, he could have fun, whether it was at a, a, a board meeting after dinner, that oh. sort of thing. He, he made it What's fun, What's interesting right? was that he would, when he would walk in the room, he would hug everyone, every man and every woman, in a politically, in a politically conservative way. And he, but literally, people would like. Ex, he was like the excitement of the day was a Bill Campbell arrival, and the reason that they did this is because they believed that he loved them in some way, that he knew who they were. He took a moment to say, "How are you?" Um, one of the executives was telling the story about they'd had a particularly strong earnings uh, result. Un, this is unrelated to me, and um, Bill came in to for herself and her boss. And he looks at her and he goes, this is a vice president, and says, who did the work? You didn't do the work. And so she sheepishly said, oh, there are six people who did all the work. He says, haul them all in. So they all come in, and he spends the next five or ten minutes telling them how incredible they were. Then they leave, and then they get back to work. Now, was that five to ten minutes important? Absolutely. Because Bill intuitively understood that the people who were doing the work not only needed the credit, which they properly did, but also that developmentally they would remember this, and they remember this 10 minutes to this day. And there's, we had another story from a, a gentleman who's now currently a Google vice president, but he was a product manager at the time, and he was demoing some products for the Google board, some new products, and he was pretty nervous. Young guy coming in, talking to the Google board, and the demo was going pretty well, and then in the middle of it, he hears this clapping from the back. I'll and it was Bill uh, doing, you know, cheering. And, you know, what do coaches do? Sometimes they just cheer. They're, they don't just tell you you're doing a great job. They no, but show no, but you. Let, but let's try this. What do we think of our moderator he's on our podcast? doing a great job. We love him. And, and, and what do we think about our audience, guys? Our audience, yeah. We love our yeah. audience. Okay? Now, you, did you feel how the did audience... Did you see him, you see him yes. smiling? Uh, my softball questions are just the, 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 even but, softer, guys. But, but the serious point is... That intervention just lifted everyone's energy up. All of our audience energies, our energies, your energy, it works. It seems foolish, but it works. And how do you strike the balance then, gentlemen, between being cozy or, or friendly or, or kind, compassionate with your staff, but also having authority? Because to use the sporting analogy yet again, coaches often face that dilemma. How close do they get to the people that ultimately they can hire and fire? Well, I think for Bill, the getting close was what built the trust. And he would get close in two ways. He would share his own vulnerabilities with you, and that would make it easier for you to then share yours. So as a coach, you can strictly focus on sort of the support, trust, respect, evangelist for courage portion of people. As a manager and coach, you have to balance that with you know the controls, supervision, reviews, performance, and that sort of thing. I think what Bill would do when he was a manager and a coach is he would separate those two things so that you had career meetings and reviews, and they were very much separate things from the weekly one-on-one -on -one where you were talking about the, the objectives, the key results, and the things that he was managing you against delivering on. And let's, let's play out the scenario, though. 
You've built that trust with someone. You've got compassion for them. You're, you're friends. You know each other well. And now that person on your team screws up. They do something wrong, and you need to help them course correct. Aren't you going to be more effective at that once you've got their trust? And they know that you've got their back. So you can go to them and say, you screwed up. You did this wrong. Here's what you're, we're going to do to fix it. And they know that you're working as a team. And trust means psychological safety, as you, you put in the book. Employees have to feel that they've got a certain amount of job security in order to be able to be creative, take risks, and ultimately to thrive and help you build the business. Am I right, Eric? Yeah, and you know, you might think that as you move up in a corporation, the executives are more self-actualized, more secure, more capable, more, more happy in what they do, but the reverse is true, that the pressure is enormous on them, that the insecurity is greater. And so to have somebody who is a safe place that they can confide in is really useful. It's helpful to them, but it's also an opportunity for the some of the management to correct you know, aberrant behavior in a safe way. And that was my next question. How, as well as psychological safety, do you make sure that the people who work for a big business feel safe so if things do go wrong, they feel that they can air those things without being sacked, that they feel that they are safe in the Me Too world, for example? How does that all work? Bill was very, very focused on there are some things which you know you could tell him that were confidential, and he would also ask you if he if you wanted him to act on this. In his case, he had had cancer for the entire time I knew him, so we knew that he was struggling, and of course he died from it tragically 15 years later. And in the case of the Me Too issues, he was particularly focused on creating space for women and listening to them, and what we now know as inclusivity, inclusivity and uh, diversity. And he understood intuitively that the, that the firm is stronger when the women are treated well and equally and are in a safe place. We uh, actually did a study at Google called Project Oxygen, and it bore out many of the principles that I think Bill understood viscerally in the 1980s and 1990s when he was a young manager growing up. But the aspects of great teams, which they have in common, are safety, clarity of goals, respect for each other, a mission that matters, and everyone having a meaningful job. And when you think about Bill in a meeting and you think about Bill picking a team, those were the five things that he made sure existed on every team before he was convinced that they were going to be successful. And Alan, you have to be able to fire people well, don't you, in order for there to be a good aftertaste, in order for the company's PR to go well, but also perhaps even more importantly for the morale within a company to, to, be, to be strong. Well, it's, some, it's a point well, you make in the book. Yeah, firing well starts with hiring well, of course. So picking good team members. But then, you know, sometimes things don't really work out and you have to let people go. And, uh, you know, we talk about Bill being very detail-oriented when it comes to management, and especially so when it comes to firing someone or letting people go. Uh, because you need to do it well so they can leave with their respect. And more importantly, there's a lot of people that are still at the company after they leave. And you want to make sure it's done well and with respect so that they feel good about it, the people who you will continue to work with day after day. And, and at least in our world, the tech industry is small enough that you keep running into these people whether you like it or not. So it, you learn to be respectful to people as long as they don't violate the core principles of the company. But on the other hand, one of Bill's quotes was, no one ever succeeds at a third chance. So oftentimes you give, you know, you give people too many chances and most people will agree when they fired someone, they should have done it sooner. Not just for them, but for the person as well. And you have to air the negativity, as you write in the book. 
But the bitching sessions shouldn't go on too long. Yeah, he just had a wonderful sense when he'd bring a team into a room of making sure everyone was heard, making sure everybody participated, and then knowing when to stop. And when it just became people whining and it became a bitch session, he would often try then to return to one of the core principles of the company, some immutable truth that you'd previously agreed to, a core value or some principle which we could use as a, as a turning point to make the decision. But as soon as it became people had aired everything they wanted to and they were just complaining, Bill would want to draw it to a close. Google, of course, is right at the coalface. It's at the interface of all sorts of vitally important issues for our age, political, social, sexual, you name it. How big a role should morality play in big business ethics, and who decides those ethics? That's probably a question for you, Eric. Well, Bill's answer was that the company is more than a business. It's a, it's a family. It's a set of belief systems, and it does have a moral code, does have an ethical code, and that all of our all of our actions should be judged based on that, and also that we are our own internal worst critics. We know when we make a mistake. We feel badly about it, and we correct it, and it's important to correct it quickly. In Google's case, Google has recently published, for example, an AI ethics group, and has an AI ethics board to deal with some of those very complex issues, and I think you'll see more. Can we talk about developing talent? Because it's something we haven't sufficiently touched on, I don't think. Did you guys feel, do you guys feel that it's really important to bring through people, through a company, so that you, you don't see them just in terms of profit? And, and their ability to produce profit, but you also care to some extent for their career development, not just because if they continue to be successful at your company, your company will be successful, but you care for them in their own right. Well, that's, I mean, that's a critical role of a manager anywhere. Certainly it is at Google, and certainly it was part of Bill's approach to team building. Um, you know, it's all about the team and the team being successful, but it's also about helping the individuals be the best they can be. And as a manager, there's a point where the person can be the best they can be, they'll be better somewhere else, and you need to let them go. Well, one lesson that Bill taught me about people and their careers came when I was supposed to be meeting with him at 1 o'clock in my office. I usually met with him in his office, and I was running late because I was interviewing somebody. And I could see him outside my office, and he was with my admin talking to her, and so I was, like, ready to close the interview because I needed to meet with Bill. And he waved me off and, you know, was like, no, finish whatever you're doing comes into my office, gives me a big hug. First thing he wants to know is, when are you writing Sade's law school reference letter? And I said, ah, it's not on my to-do list. Sade's going to law school. And Bill basically then ripped into me and said, I know more about your admin's goals in life than you do, and I've only spent five minutes with her. So he was always focused on getting to know people on getting to know their goals, on getting to know where they wanted to go, and then helping them get there. And this is where reporting the trip comes in, isn't it? Yeah, so one of the things that we did is we had trip reports, and the idea was that, sorry, the general theory is that the outcomes were much more determined by how the people work together than whatever issue you were working on. In other words, people first. And I've come to believe that in doing this book, that the outcome is much more determined by the people you pick how they're organized, what they talk about, and how they make decisions than any of the specific policy which we spend most of our time talking about. So in the case of trip reports, it's a pretty simple idea. 
begin the meeting not with some list of problems, you know, we're being sued by this and this product failed and we have a revenue problem, but do it rather around where people have been in the last week. And it humanizes the conversation. You know, I was in France, you know, I had a meeting with this, uh, this uh, diplomat. Um, My daughter won her, her baseball yeah. game. What was interesting was we started off with business trip reports, but it became important. So people would say, over the weekend, I did something with right. my family, and then Saturday night I went to this dinner, and I heard the following. Yeah. And it became a way of passing along informal information. And nobody ever does this. And yet it humanized the team at a time of great pressure. And we got there. You know, we, we, we didn't spend all of our time on trip reports, but we started with them to signify the importance of the human aspect of what people were doing. And you'll notice these are all things that anyone can do. So Bill was a remarkable guy, but starting a meeting with trip reports, pairing people, uh, you know, Asking changing how you, people how they are, getting yes. to know what their admin cheering wants to do. And meeting it, presumably. And meeting it. And, and, and being and, honest. And cheering. And cheering and, and the percussive clap. And these things, everyone can do them. Do you think industry. you're born a leader? Do you think you can become a leader? Do you think it's a mixture of both? Do you think it differs from man to man, from woman to woman, Jonathan? I think you are, I think people are born with some potential for greatness. And I think people either do or don't develop passion. But if you have, though, if, if you're smart and passionate and have potential, I think you can be taught leadership. I think a lot of these things, there's a lot of people who are excellent performers and may even be good managers as far as an operational standpoint. Some of the aspects in the book, I think, are what make the difference between that and true leadership, which so, is really the, the people aspect of it. Hamlet, um, some are born great, some become great, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Um, the, which is applicable to you, Eric? Uh, it, it, if, it's, if it's true of me at all, it's true in the third third category. Um, you need an opportunity to emerge as a great leader. Uh, it's often said that you need a great war to have a great general, otherwise you just have normal generals. And so um, you need both the circumstance and the opportunity and then the fact that people rise to the occasion. And if you look in our, in our history as a society, look at British history, uh, the great leaders came out of conflict, right? And they would not have emerged if there wasn't some extraordinary conflict that had put them in that situation where they rose to the occasion. So what Bill would always say is trust the people, get the right people in the room, give them a really hard problem and see how well they do and follow their best idea. And leadership naturally emerges from that formula. We've got just two or three minutes left because you've got to go and do your event. There's a gr great big elephant in the room, of course, which is the quality of the product. We haven't talked about that, have we? Does that follow from everything else we've it been talking follow. about? It does follow. What's interesting is that when you have the right people and you have the right mission, so in our case, serving customers, the product quality becomes super important. But what's interesting about Bill is he didn't focus on product strategy, product quality, any of those kinds of things. He figured those were things which people knew how to handle, hand, handle already. And having spent so many years of your life with Google, helping turn it into this massive success story in one sense. Do you, do you all feel, starting with you, Eric, that it is, broadly speaking, a force for good? Are you aware of the dangers? Uh, I absolutely believe that Google is a force for good, and I can recite detail after detail of the impact that we have had. Let's start with the fact that people have information that they didn't have before. 
globally, right, billions of people have information that was not available to them before because they didn't have encyclopedias, they didn't have libraries. Uh, I was in Kenya with my friend who's a computer science professor, and he said, I love Google. I said, well, I love Google too. And he said, well, I love Google because we use Google to teach computer science. And I said, really? He said, you don't understand, Eric. We don't have textbooks. So once you understand that the impact on human knowledge and the human and accessibility of Google is profound, you understand why it's so important that Google continue to be as successful as it is. And may I just ask this? I'm acutely aware of the fact that not only am I a bloke, a guy, a man, but I'm speaking to three men as well. Are you all confident that in 10 years' time you might all be women? In other words, that more and more women... Will will start to to run bigger and bigger I, business. Of course, I, I, there are some examples, I can, but are there, I can there aren't enough. Say, I can confidently say that the three of us as individuals will remain male. <laughs> Go ahead. And I confidently can say we sure hope that there will be many women leaders, uh, given the opportunity that we've had. And just very finally, top tip from each of you on leadership, please, starting with Jonathan. Uh, build trust. Start with trust and start by showing yourself and sharing, sharing of yourself with people so that they understand who you are so that they can then share who they are. Alan, because we haven't really talked about clarity of communication so far, but I'm getting that from Jonathan. What's your top tip? My top tip is love your team, love your colleagues, love your peers. This is the word we heard over and over again in talking to people that we interviewed. Bill made it okay to bring love into the workplace. Get to know them, get to know them about their lives outside of work, show up. Eric? When you look at corporations, most of the management spends most of their time in management meetings. And most of those managers spend most of their time complaining about their management meetings. Fix that. So figure out a way from top to bottom to how to make the management meetings either more rare, because they're useless, or hopefully more effective, where you're talking about the hard issues, the important issues. I can tell you that in large bureaucracies, everyone knows what the issues are, and no one talks about the real issues. Bill was very good at making sure that we were talking about whatever the problem was right in front of us. And I'll just finish by saying that I'm very impressed as an interviewer by how concise all three of you be, have been in answering my questions. It's very rare to be able to fit so much into 35, 40 minutes. So may I congratulate you, and I'm going to give you a round of applause in return for the one you gave me. This week's show starred Eric Schmidt, Jonathan Rosenberg and Alan Eagle and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. As ever, you can find an archive of interviews with the best and brightest names in global culture on our website, howtoacademy.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please, please, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the series. And you can visit us live in London for a spectacular season of events, with upcoming guests including artist Ai Weiwei, novelist William Gibson, comedian Viv Groskop, New York Times columnist Barry Weiss, NASA astronaut Catherine Sullivan, and many more. Thanks for listening. <laughs>